I ran across a picture this week titled, Another Dream Shattered. The subtitle was, Someone Else or Someone Has Finally Managed to Photograph the Pot at the End of the Rainbow. And here it is. Maybe. Isn't that great? Open that little door, little leprechauns walk out. It's great. So, so you entered into a community of faith. You expected to find God, and you expected to find some people who act like God. It didn't quite turn out the way you thought it would be. You entered into that place, and what you discovered was probably more human than divine, more selfish than loving, more hurtful than healing, more shameful than hopeful, more outhouse than God's house. And even though that process wounded you, you're an amazing person because you still hunger after God because you just know that's right. You, you know there's someone, there's something, and, and so you're, you're after God and you have this hunger, but you really, you really aren't sure you trust the institution that has packaged him. And you're not the only one. Tara came into my office and said to me, I, I really want to, f- I think I want to follow Jesus. I want to know how to do that. But if the signs that I've seen his followers carrying that say God hates homosexuals, if that's true, then I can't follow a God who hates my mother. Lars Justinen was hired to paint a a picture that was going to be used on posters to advertise a conference specifically to discuss the character of God. The organization had contracted with malls in the area to put the posters up, that 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 painting would be placed on those posters, the posters would be put up to advertise this gathering to talk about the character of God. And, And this was what the picture looked like. As soon as the posters went up in the mall, the malls were deluged with phone calls, mostly from Christians complaining about the picture because they couldn't fathom Jesus Christ washing the feet of Osama bin Laden. So the people in the mall took the pictures down. And the, 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 the Christian college that had contracted with, with the, the organization to provide the space rescinded its contract. I mean, after all, Would Jesus really wash the feet of Osama bin Laden? And so you came into the community of faith, and I specifically want to speak to you that have done this. You walked into the community of faith. You knew a little bit about Jesus and his love and his care and his washing of feet, and and you expected to have your feet washed in the condition you came, and instead you felt rejection. I want you to know that what you felt was not God, but was religion. Doctor and Professor Gregory Boyd describes religion this way, and you'll find it on your notes. Religious people 
feed the hunger of their heart by striving to impress what picture of God or gods they embrace with the rightness of their beliefs and their behaviors. In contrast to the wrongness of others' beliefs and their behaviors. So you come here and I talk to you about God and you study in the scriptures and you go to a class and you have someone teach you about God and you read magazine articles and you watch Christian television and you listen to Christian radio and you begin to form what you believe is the God that that is described there and you create this God with the beliefs that go with it. And you're tenacious in defending those beliefs because that's God. And, and you are strong to come against those who, who don't believe that structure. But with interest I read where Paul the Apostle writes to the church at Corinth. And he says, you know, you could speak with all the languages the angels speak. And all the languages you'd find on earth. You could have a spirit of prophecy where you would know everything that is needed to be known on earth. You know everything about God. In fact, you could give your life as a martyr. You could give everything you have to Haiti tomorrow. But if it is not embraced in love, it is zero. Zilch, nada, nothing. My beliefs may be right and yours may be wrong or yours may be right and mine may be wrong. But the question must be, as theologian Christopher West states, is this behavior an authentic sign of Christ's love or is it not? Is this the way that Jesus would respond? Is this what he would do? He said, but wait, 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 wait. You can't just let people believe what they want to believe. You just can't let them espouse this this stuff that's not right when they start talking about Jesus is not the Son of God. If they say there's other gods, you just can't let that stuff go. I know that. I understand that. But Jesus didn't agree with the tax collectors that ripped off their people. Jesus didn't agree with the woman who sold her body for sex. Jesus did not agree so often with with the people he talked with. Jesus didn't agree with with those, those zealots who would ambush the Roman sentries. But yet they said Jesus is our friend. He was called a friend of sinners. Why? Because Jesus was not religious, but he was holy. And see, there's a big difference. Jesus believed that holiness was not how the follower of God contrasts himself with pimps and druggies. You know, you pull yourself aside because that word holy means to be set apart. So you pull yourself away from those people who don't believe what you believe. And so you push yourself back from them and keep yourself pure. Jesus believed by his very actions that you walk among them and that being set apart simply meant... You're living in submission to God and manifesting the life of God in the midst of those people. And you're sitting here saying, yes, that's what I was looking for when I came to a community of faith. So I have a confession for you. We're not really good at that holy thing. 
We don't do that real well at times. And it's not just us. It's been throughout history. You go back to the people we talked about last week. You, you check out that couple who, if you go to the book of the Bible where the trophy case of faith is found, you will see their names. These two are remembered for their incredible faith because out of their faith, they parented an entire nation that brought us the Messiah. They had so much faith that they were able to bring forth a child when he was 100 and she was 90. I don't want that faith. Their names, Abraham and Sarah, before they entered into this covenant relationship, Abram and Sarai. Heroes of faith. But they weren't too good at the faith thing either. Ten years after God came to them and said, you're going to have a kid, even though you're barren, and you're going to produce a nation that's going to bring forth the Messiah who's going to bless the world. Ten years after they got that word, their faith caved in. And here's the story, Genesis 16. You'll find it on your notes. Genesis 16 says this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children, so go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. Now, I want you to understand that in the culture of that day, it wasn't unusual for a barren woman to take her servant and give her to her husband and use her as a surrogate. And that's the problem. She was used. When faith caves in, Selfishness leaps up. And I got to tell you, it's not an excuse. It's just the truth. That's how we are. Let's look at Hagar for a moment. This woman grew in their family. This woman became part of Abraham and Sarai's family. She found them as family. They became her provider and her protector. And the thing that I think she liked about it was this connection they had with this God that she was beginning to understand. They had this encounter with Elohim, the God of creation. And, and, and they would have this... In fact, Abraham would talk face to face. And they would have this connection. Later they'd find out he had another name called Jehovah meaning the covenant God, the intimate God, the God none like any other God. And, and they had this intimacy with God. In fact, it so profoundly impacted Abram that every time he had one of these encounters, he built an altar wherever he was and had this intense worship before God. So, of course, she felt included. She felt protected. She felt secure in that relationship with the Creator God through this family. And then just out of left field, Sarai shows up and she says, you know, I've come to the conclusion that God's not working this thing out and he probably needs some help from me. So, Abram, take her and you have sex with her and you get us a child through her. Ladies, put yourself in that place. What's amazing about that is Abram, who's had these relationships with God doesn't say no. 
First of all, God never said, do it this way. Never. He never said, go take that maidservant. And secondly, it broke the, the very law that he understood that God said that the, the man and wife shall come together and the two shall become one flesh and let no man pull that apart. This monogamous relationship was supposed to stay intact. He was not supposed to have another wife. And yet he went with the idea. The problem is this, that forced blessing creates abuse. God made this promise, and he's not working it out very well, so I think I should help him. And so we endeavor to do that for God. Let's help him out. Last year, I got on an airplane in Detroit. It's one of those smaller planes. And I'm working my way to the back, and I'm about halfway back, and I, and I sit down, and, and I'm listening to this conversation behind me. And this woman's talking to this man, and she says to him, while she's standing there looking at him in a seat, she says, well, what does your seat say? He says, well, 20B. And she says, well, well I have 20B. He says, well, no, no, I have to see. I've got, and, and she said, well, I've got 20B. And they're arguing back and forth whose seat that is, whose space that is. About that time, the lady in the front says, we're going to encourage you to please take a seat. We'd like to take off immediately for Erie, Pennsylvania. And the guy in the seat goes, Erie? She says, I'm not going to Erie. So he's up grabbing stuff, and he scoots out, and, and she sits down. When we decide we're going to help God outside of the space of trust he gave us, and we move to a location, a movement, a place that is not ours and decide that that is where we're going to sit, that is where we're going to camp, we are in the wrong spot, heading the wrong direction, ripping people, people off in the process because God never intended for us to be in that space. God says, in this space, I have given you what you need, and I want you to trust me in this place. The problem is this. We use people to love our blessings instead of using our blessings to love people. We get going on this, I'm blessed, and I got God's favor, and it's just this great thing. So I always pray before I get on an airplane, first of all, for protection, and secondly, that it will not get stuck in Detroit or Philadelphia. And I pray that I will get a really good seat because I like to be able to have leg, leg length and I like to be able to read and I, it just, it's good for me. And so I say, God, just give me favor. I know that I'll never be put in first class unless Pam's traveling with me. For some reason, they always do that when she's with me. But other than that, I say, God, just give me a good, good space. So I'm getting on an airplane and it's, it's a great seat. It is the best seat around other than first class. So I got the seat. So I go in, sit down and say, thank you, Jesus, this is a great seat, going to be great, good to read stuff, and it's going to be good. And, and this young lady comes and she sits down next to me in the middle seat. I say, hi, how are you? And we can talk a little bit. And, and she sits down, gets comfortable, and there's this tap on my shoulder. And I look up and it's this guy that's just kind of rough looking and he says, hey. I said, hi. Hey, that's my girlfriend. I'm not doing nothing. I'm just sitting here. He says, I want to sit by her. Why don't you go back to my seat? I said, what? He said, I, I, want, I, I want to sit with my girlfriend. Will you go back in my seat? I look back where his seat is, and it's nothing like my seat. So in a few nanoseconds, I think, God, you blessed me with this seat. This is your will. <laughs> this is your blessing for me. And he says, do you think you could do that? 
And I'm thinking through all the reasons why I should. And then that, 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 that crazy little thing that people say, what would Jesus do? Just pops in my mind. What would Jesus do? And I'm thinking he wouldn't even take a plane. He'd just go. He'd just, he'd just, so th- this doesn't even count. This is not part of it. Jesus wouldn't get on a plane. Not going to happen. And, and that, that voice, you know, being the Spirit of God, just says, what are you going to do with this? Oh, God, I went through all the prayer stuff, and, you, and, and, and they're right here. So I said, on the inside, I said, sure. On the outside, I said, sure. <laughs> so I got up and got in my cramped little seat, and I'm sitting there saying, God, you blessed me with that seat. What's going on? And, and in, in essence, what God said was this. I gave you that seat for a moment so that you could give it to him because that's his space, not yours. We've got to understand that when God blesses us, it is a moment that he says, I'm giving that for you, and that may be your space, but that space may belong to someone else. And when you enter into a space that's not yours, you're in the wrong direction, and you're doing the wrong thing, and you're ripping people off. So, Sarai and Abram are in the wrong space. And the story goes on in Genesis 16, verse 4. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress Sarai with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms. And this is great. It's Abram's fault. I love this. I have a lot to say about that, but that's a whole other sermon. And it's men only. (laughs) Somebody over here is yelling, keep preaching. Say it. Go ahead. So... I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show you who's wrong, you or me. Oh, I love that one, you or me. I don't think God has anything to do with that, just you or me. Abram replied, look, she is your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Great answer. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that what happened? She ran away. Abram's... And Sarai have this God thing going, but in the process, they bulldoze Hagar right over. And it's no wonder the scripture says she has contempt. That's an interesting word. The word contempt means to see that thing small in your eyes. That they used, she used to look with her on honor and, and respect, and because of what she's done, she now sees her as very small. She has not lived up to what was advertised. And you're sitting here saying, that happened to me. I came into the community of faith, and I thought that they would love me and care for me. And when I had my surgery, nobody showed up. When I was, was in bed, and, and my family had hardly anything, no one came by to make me meals. I started dating this guy, and, and he was, he was, he's a believer. He told me he believes in Jesus, and so we started dating. And, and, and so as time went on, he, he said he really cared for me. And then he got a little handsy with me, and I thought that was kind of strange for a believer, but he did that. And then next thing I know, as I re- resisted him and said, I'm not sure that's okay, he starts seeing other people, and then he finally comes to me, and he says to me, you know, I've been praying, and I don't think it's God's will for us to be together because you're not spiritual enough, and he took off. What do I do with that? You say that never happens. Oh, believe me, it does. So Hagar's pregnant, not in a manner that she desired. She doesn't necessarily want to be that man's wife and, and, and really isn't. She just, she's just a surrogate. 
And, and when that child grows, do you think she wants to take her first child and hand it to another woman and let her call that her child? It's no wonder she feels this contempt, this pain. And not only does, does Sarai not realize her mistake in, in, in asking forgiveness, she realizes it's not what God wants, but instead of, of forgiving or asking for forgiveness, what she does is that she blames her husband and becomes so distressed over this herself that she brings contempt on Hagar and, and becomes so mean to her, it drives her out of the picture. And that's you. Oh, you're here today, but you've run, and you, you'll just hang out in the outskirts of the community of faith because you don't want to get wounded again. You're hanging out in that perimeter just so that you can get a sense of God and you can enjoy the worship of the worship team and know that God's there, but dealing with people, you're out the door. You won't mess with this because you've been hurt too much. And so, in fact, you've said these words. You've said that I trust people outside the church more than I trust people inside the church. And what an indictment. And so you've run. I want to tell you that one day you'll have to find God's care in your pain. You will have to come back to that spot. You see, there is no higher echelon of God's care for the spiritual people. She must have gone thinking, well, they've got the thing with God, Abraham and Sarah I do, and so they've got that big thing going with God, and even though they treated me bad, they're God's best friends, and so I don't get anything, so I'm out of here. There's no upper echelon of God's care and love. You trusted those spiritual people that just seemed to talk to God in that community of faith, and then they let you down, they burned you, and you say, well, then I just got no place with God. I want to tell you that God's care, his love, is not biased. You've run and you say the church is too painful for me. I want to tell you that another's faithless choices can't barricade God's plan. They can't happen. You tasted God's presence and you want more, but the ugly people sent you packing. So now what do you do? Listen to what happens next. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. The long road to Shur is on the, on the road back to Egypt. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Can you believe that? Now, I want to pause right here and say that if you're in a situation where you are being physically abused. You're being psychologically abused. It doesn't mean run back there right now. So I don't want you to take the scripture and say, I've got to go back and be beaten up again. Don't go there. You've got to walk through that process. But I'm talking to people this morning who just, it, it, they got hurt in, in a church setting, in a community of faith, and God's saying to you, you've got to go back and deal with this thing. And what's amazing is the angel shows up, but I want you to, I want you to understand that the, the wording there is the angel. The angel, theologians will tell you, means Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. Jesus Christ showed up to this woman. Why? Because one of Jesus' specialties is finding lost people. He finds, he finds a, a, a man that's hated up in a tree trying to figure out who God is and he takes him to his place and has lunch with him and changes his life. He found that lost guy. 
He finds a woman who is outcast from her own society and is out by a well in the middle of the day, in the heat, in enemy territory, and Jesus finds her in enemy territory. Jesus has this way of finding people who are lost, people who religion has cast off. He finds them, and he'll ask you this question when he finds you. Same question he asked Hagar. Where are you running from, and where are you going to? So there you are. You're on the outskirts of of this whole faith thing, and and I'm going to ask you, where are you running from, and where are you going to? Where are you headed? What do you think you're going to get? She's running from her pain. Let me ask you a question. Are you running from your pain? And if you are, do you believe that God is not in your pain? Do you think that when you have pain, he's nowhere to be found, so you've got to run from that place to find him? God says, I'm in your pain. I'm right there. You're not outside my love. So he tells her, go back to that place of your pain and find me there. And here's what happens. Genesis 16. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means what? God hears. For the Lord has heard the cry of your distress. I go back? She's in distress. The word actually means browbeaten. She's really pushed down. Anybody ever felt that kind of pressure? Ever felt browbeaten before? Yeah. Point to the person who did it. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. You just feel pushed down. And God says, I want you to go back there. Submit to me by submitting to her. Why? Because I want you to name this kid Ishmael, which means what? God hears. And when God hears, he always has a plan. He always has a plan to get you to your space, to get you to your spot, to get you to where you need to go. And Jesus arrives to tell her specifically, and Jesus arrived here today to tell you that he hears you. You know what else she did and you need to do and I need to do is this, that she sees God's care beyond the pain. You got to see God's care beyond the pain. It's an amazing story. It just dawns on Hagar that she's just seen God. And you know what she says? She realizes that nobody sees God and lives and yet she has lived. And, And this is a woman who's outside of the covenant relationship. This is a woman who is not a follower of Jehovah God, but yet Jesus shows up to help this woman. Her tribe, her son, who will give birth and will become the Arabs who fight the Jews. But Jesus shows up to this woman to say, I care for you. Is that amazing? Oh, we've got this clique of people and God loves us more than he loves you. I got news for you. That is not the case. Jesus shows up where Jesus hears people cry. And he knows what the future is going to be. That even prophesies that in that moment, what he, that boy's going to be like. Rebellious and, and, and hard against other people. And when Hagar sees that he comes, this, this angel comes to her, this non-spiritual person, and that she's not died, she names him. And here's what she says, Genesis 16, verse 13. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord. 
who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? In other words, am I still alive and I've seen this one? So that the well was named Ber Lahai Roha, which means well of the living one who sees me. It can still be found between Kadesh and Bered. So does God really see you? Does God see you in your woundedness? Does God see you when when it seems like the religious community has pushed you out? Does God see you and you feel just so so unspiritual? There is this great story told by sociologist and follower of Jesus, Tony Campala, about a woman who is just not very spiritual, a woman who really has no real awareness of God, who feels like the religious community probably has rejected her because of what she does. In an amazing moment, Jesus shows up in this woman's life and gives her a spark of God in community. And I want Tony Campolo to tell you in his own words. I uh, had to go on a speaking engagement to Honolulu. Hey, sometimes you get Chicago, sometimes you get Honolulu. You go to Honolulu, you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning if you're from the East Coast because of the time difference, and I, I was hungry. I went looking for something to eat up a side street. I found a greasy spoon. I went in. There were no booths, just a row of stools in front of the counter. I sat down. There was nobody in the place. I, I didn't touch the menu. It was one of those plastic menus, you know, and grease had piled up on it. I knew that if I opened the thing, something extraterrestrial would have crawled out. This fat guy with a greasy apron, unshaved, cigar comes out, puts the cigar down and says, What do you want? I said, A cup of coffee and a donut. He poured the coffee, and then he did this. And he picked up the dump. I hate that. So I'm sitting there, 3.30 in the morning, munching on my dirty donut. Went into this place from about 10 or 11 prostitutes. And they sat on either side of me. And it was a small place. And I tried to disappear. The one next to me was especially boisterous. And she said to her friend, Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be... I'm going to be... 39. And her friend said, so what do you want me to do? Sing happy birthday? So you're going to be 39. You want a cake? You want a party? First woman said, look, I don't want anything. I'm just telling you it's my birthday. Why do you have to hurt my feelings? And then she added, I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. I don't expect to have one now. That did it. I waited until they left. And then I called Harry over. I said, do they come in here every night? He said, yeah. I said, the one right next to me. He said, Agnes. I said, it's her birthday tomorrow. Harry, what do you say? We decorate this place. And when she comes in tomorrow night, we have a little party for her. She's never had a party in her whole life. He grabbed my hand and squeezed it and said, mister, that's beautiful. Beautiful. She ain't come out here. This guy wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. It's her birthday tomorrow. She came out and she said, oh, mister. That's brilliant. Nobody ever does anything for Agnes, and she's one of a, the good people in this town. I know, I know what she does to make money, but she's a good person. 
I said, can I decorate the place? She said, to your heart's content. I said, I'm going to bring a big birthday cake. Harry said, oh, no, the cake's my thing. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so I got there the next morning at about 2.30. I bought this crepe paper at, the, at the, the Kmart. I strung it across the place. I made a big sign, happy birthday, Agnes, put it on the mirror behind the counter. I had the place spruced. It was ready. Jan, who did the cooking, had gotten the word out on the street. By 3.15, every single prostitute in Honolulu was squeezed into this diner. It was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes. And me! 3.30 in the morning, the door opens. In comes Agnes and her friends. I've got everybody set, everybody ready. As they come to the door, we yell, Happy birthday, Agnes! And start cheering like mad. I've never seen anybody so stunned in my life. Her knees buckled. They studied her. They got her down on the stool and we started singing, Happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday to you. When they brought out the cake with the candles, that was it. She lost it and started to cry. Harry just stood there with the cake, with all the candles. Said, knock it off. Come on, Magnus, knock it off and blow out the candles. Come on, blow out the candles. She tried, but she couldn't do it, so he blew out the candles. <laughs> he gave her the knife and said, now cut the cake. Come on now, cut the cake, Agnes, cut the cake. She sat for a long moment, and then she turned to me, and she said, Mister, I really don't want to cut the cake. Is it okay if I don't cut the cake? I said, it's your cake. It's your cake. You can do with it what you want. She said, I want to take it home. I want to show it to my mother. Is that okay? I said, sure. She stood up. I said, do you have to do it now? She said, I live two doors down. Let me take the cake to her, and, and I promise I'll bring it right back. I promise. She picked up the cake like it was the Holy Grail, and she pushed her way through the crowd and out the door. And as the door swung slowly shut, there was dead silence. You talk about an awkward silence. All of us were just standing there, stunned. I didn't know what to say, so... I finally said, uh, what, do you, what, do you, what do you say we pray? It's weird looking back on it now. A sociologist leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner at 3.30 in the morning. It was the right thing to do. And I prayed that God would deliver her from what filthy men had done to her, probably starting when she was... She was too young to even know what was going on. That's how these things start, you know. Some kid, 11, 12 years old, gets messed over by some filthy slob and, and her self-image is destroyed and she's ruined and we blame her when we ought to be blaming him. And I prayed that God would make her new because we're here to declare the good news that no matter where you've been or what you've done, Jesus can make you new. When I finished the prayer, Harry leaned across the counter and said, Hey, Camp Paulo, you told us you were a sociologist. You're a preacher. What kind of church you preach in? And in one of those moments, when you come up with just the right words, I said, I, I, I preach in a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. I'll never forget his response. Never.
He said, no, you don't. Nah, you don't. He said, I would join a church like that. Dad, is this church? And for some of you who sit here today, I tell you I am sorry. Because there are those moments we have not made his church that way. But I'm going to tell you that God hears you right now. And God sees you. And it's time for you to come home. It's time for you to come back to that place where you found your pain because there's plenty of people here who will be your healing agent. There are plenty of people who represent Jesus in this place. Some of the most godly people I know live in this town, worship in this place, and they're here to help heal you. It's time for you to live beyond your religious shame. It's a big step for you. And so I've I've been asking God, what do I do with this? How do I end this thing? And here's what I think we should do. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand. And for you people that feel compelled to run for the parking lot, don't. I don't want this disturbed. This is a holy moment. For God is hearing some cries and seeing some people who did not know they had been seen by him. That Jesus himself, the promise of the covenant, has come to you today even though you feel unspiritual. So will you stand? And I'm going to ask you today if you have been wounded by the community of faith or religious people. And today you want to journey back to the place of God's healing and his best for you. Then I want to pray over you, not going to embarrass you or single you out. But I think this is a dynamic moment. And I'm not going to use music to... to, draw you by emotion, you know what's being spoken to you now. And so I'm going to ask you in just a moment for you to turn to each other because we are community and we are agents of healing broken people. I'm going to ask you to turn to people around you may not know them. But this is so vitally important. I'm going to ask you to turn to somebody around you and say, do you want to be healed? And specifically not physical healing, but the healing of your life from the brokenness that has come by religious shame, by the wound that you have suffered by the religion or the church you tried to enter into. And then I'm going to pray something very specifically that I think is going to release you. And then you'll be on your way on a new journey. Your heart's pounding real fast now. You're thinking, do do I say yes, I need it because I know I do. What, what, What will they do to me? Relax. I love you. And this is the beginning of your release. And so again, I'm going to have you turn and just say, do you want to be healed? And if that, if that applies to you, you've had a, 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 a wound by, by the church. You may even be coming to church and still carrying a wound. That's you too. We want to get you by that now. I want to get you by that. So without hesitation, now just turn to the people around you and say, would you like to be healed. Just say those words and then say yes if that's you and come down here and join me right here. That person's going to come with you. They're going to come with you right here. Come on, do it. Just turn to the person. There we go. Come on. 
I want you to just bring that person right up here when they say yes. That's it. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. That's it. Come on. When I first moved here to Erie, 15 years ago, I got a phone call about the fourth week I was here, and a woman was calling me complaining about the church, about the past and about the pain she had suffered. And what I did for her at that moment, I listened to her completely, and then it broke me. And I said to her, will you forgive me? And she said, it wasn't you. I said, oh, yeah, it was, because I'm part of that group that wounded you. I'm part of that that religious community, that church that wounded you. Will you forgive me? And she started crying and she said, yes. And for her, it was a release. So as strange as this may seem to you, I'm going to ask the person who brought you down here to turn to the person who is wounded at this moment. And on behalf of the church of Jesus and Jesus himself, Will you turn to that person who's been wounded and will you say to them, will you forgive me? Now, when you do that, you who are responding, you may not be able to do that totally. You may say, I'll start or I'm trying to work through it, but at least you know the offer's there. I'm not going to make you say anything you don't want to say, but I want you to begin on the journey. And then I'm going to pray for you. So now just turn to each other and just ask that. And on behalf of the church, of which I am a shepherd, I ask your forgiveness, for we have wounded you. And we will do our best to be holy before you, not resisting you, but embracing you as Jesus has embraced you and walk you on your journey. So let me pray for you. Now may you discover a freedom in this movement, in this moment. May you discover that there's a Jesus who loves you and you didn't see it to the degree you should have because of man, because of our response. And may you understand that he has seen you and he's there with you and he's listened to you and he knows your pain and he's freeing you now. And may you have the courage in the hours that come to be able to release that and forgive. And I pray that you will find those who are pure in their walk to walk with you. And may you find in the community of faith, the very presence of the Almighty. May you be set free in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If this morning you want to know more about a relationship with God through Jesus, we have a gift to guide you on that journey, and it's out at our information desk. Just ask for that free gift.